0: Support for this podcast is provided by the Florence County Museum, presenting legend Francis Marion in the PD. The exhibit explores how 19th century art depicting Marion and his militia contributed to the Swamp Fox's legend in early American independence. Now on exhibit, flocomuseum.org. From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter
1: Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will talk with Ben Ziegler and Stephen Mott from the Florence County Museum about the legend of Francis Marion.
0: The current exhibit at the museum, Legend, Francis Marion in the P.D., examines the early decades of American independence when poets and painters turned General Francis Marion into a mythical figure, part fact, part folk legend. Their efforts were so effective that the cultural impact of their words and images lingers today.
1: Using historical artworks on loan from major national art institutions, along with new archaeological discoveries, legend explores the truths and the myth of General Francis Marion in conjunction with South Carolina's recognition of the 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary War. With me in the studio today are Ben Ziegler, who is former chairman of the Francis Marion Trail Commission and also president of the Florence County Historical Society, and Stephen Mott, who is curator of interpretation and collections at the Florence County Museum. And we'll be talking about a wonderful exhibit at that museum featuring Francis Marion, one of the great heroes in American history and certainly the American Revolution. In the interest of full disclosure, we need to let our listeners know that the Florence County Museum is an underwriter of South Carolina Public Radio. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Journal. Thank you, Walter. It's a pleasure. Ben, before we went on on Mike, you were talking about uh, or the revival of interest in Francis Marion at the turn of the 21st century. Mm. Even in South Carolina, he'd kind of been forgotten.
2: Mm. Yeah, uh, I was. I mentioned that a mutual friend of ours, the late Bill Chandler, and I. Uh, Bill lived in Williamsburg County, and I live in, in Florence County. We were. Uh, both Sir Francis Marion devotees, uh, students of local history, and and of course, Francis Marion looms large uh, in the PD. And Bill and I realized in 2005 that uh, we were coming up on the 225th anniversary of Marion taking command of the Williamsburg militia at a place called Witherspoon's Ferry, which is in lower Florence County. So Bill and I put on an event to celebrate that. As we began thinking about this and talking to other people uh, interested in history and interested in preservation and culture. We realized the Marian story is there. Everyone knows it generally, but we did know a great deal about the specifics of it, the, the actual sites of battles, uh, sites of camps, the material culture, what we could learn through archaeology. And also we realized, and this is what it was at a time when the state was doing a good deal of tourism Uh, development uh, research. We worked with state tourism plan uh, folks who came to South Carolina from Ireland that the Marion story was a wonderful opportunity to bring people into the rural areas of the PD. If we could find these sites and develop them and interpret them uh, we could create what the tourism people call product that could bring people into Williamsburg County and Lower Florence County and and Berkeley County and places like that. So it had several uh, different thrusts but the, the, the sort of overarching theme was a, a curiosity to to dig deeper into the Marion story, to understand the real history, to understand the reasons behind the the myth of Marion, the the concept of Marion that has arisen over the last two hundred years. Well, of course,
1: there 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 are myths and there's history, and sometimes in the case of Marion, they they might come together. Mm. Uh, of course, Marion was one of the great heroes of the American Revolution. I've told people time and time again, if you look at the literature that came out in the early 19th century as America was Mm. developing a national Mm. culture, there are two men that are the subject of hagiographies, uh, poetry, and you've got George Washington and you've got Francis Marion. I mean, even in New England, William Cullen Bryant, one Mm. of the great New England poets, wrote the Song of Marion's Men.
2: Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right, Walter. And it's it's a fascinating history, the development of the idea of Marion after the war. You know, Marion died in 1795, so he didn't live very long into the early history of the Republic. Um, but he, at the time of his death, it's very interesting to go back and read the contemporaneous accounts of Marion, the memoirs of people like Bannister Tarleton, who is his great nemesis, uh, who never mentions Marion in his in his memoirs. Uh, Marion was a revered figure locally. He was seen as an important figure in the partisan war in South Carolina, but he didn't have the stature of a Washington or a Green. And as you know, the man who changed that was Mason Locke Weems, who uh, wrote uh, or took a, a biography of Marion that had been written by Peter Ory, Marion's great friend and lieutenant. Ory had given it to Weems to publish. Weems then took it, rewrote it, and um, as Ory said, uh, "'Tis not my history, but your romance." He turned it into a great sort of thematic piece uh, from which you can sieve some some real history, But but Weems called him the Washington of the South. Well, in terms of military, but
1: also, remember, Parson Weems, as he was mm, known, mm-hmm. also wrote The Life of Washington. Exactly, You know, The Cherry Tree Fable mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and all of that. But obviously, both of those books caught the imagination of the American mm-hmm. public. Uh, and the American Republic Mm -hmm. uh, in the days uh, of the early 19th century. Our
2: our mutual friend, Steve Smith, uh, who wrote the wonderful book uh, about Marion, myth history and archaeology about the Snows Island community, which I commend to to anyone interested in the subject. He says that when Southerners, South Carolinians in in particular, moved west in the – first quarter of the nineteenth century, and you know that whole story very well uh, that, that most of them took two books with them the Bible and weems 's Life of Marion and one of the things I find interesting and it, and it comes into the art in some to some extent is that the people who fought with Marion these were mostly sort of frontier people, very simple militia folks and it wasn 't until their children and grandchildren started getting rich on cotton. Uh, in the first quarter of the 19th century that the Marion story exploded. And and I truly believe that Marion provided these people sort of a myth of origin. My daddy fought with Francis Marion. My granddaddy fought with Francis Marion. But there was a certain part of the Marion theme that also tied into Southern identity that really reaches its peak in the
1: 1850s. And as you follow the movement of South Carolinians West, uh, their Marion counties, Mm. their towns named Marion, Marion, Alabama, I mean, in... The old Southwest, and Ohio,
2: and Indiana, and um, just throughout the West. Okay,
1: now Stephen, one of the myths of Marion is what did he look like? In your exhibit, you've got two portraits of Francis Marion, but there is no contemporary portrait of Francis Marion that exists.
3: Yeah, so one of the things that I wanted to address in this exhibition, which is largely about how the greater myth of Francis Marion was created and then disseminated and perpetuated really for the past 200 years, was how did America want its heroes to look? We don't have many reliable accounts of Marion's appearance. The most reliable one is the one that was published in 1821 by uh, a former officer of Marion's named William Dobian James, who gives a very unflattering account of Marion calling him, he was short, he was old, he was unattractive, uh, he wasn't necessarily pleasant in demeanor. So you have this account written by someone who knew Marion, who served with Marion, But the problem is that as true as it may be, it's not very flattering. And so when people are trying to come up with how to visually represent this new emerging American identity, they're leaning on these major military figures like George Washington and others in these grandiose portraits. Heroic figures these heroic figures, but Marion didn't necessarily fit the visual expectation.
1: And one thing you left out is that he was swarthy. He was a Huguenot.
2: Sw- short, swarthy, bow-legged, hook-nosed. Yeah. Uh, I, we were laughing uh, on the way over here. There's a wonderful line from Light Horse Harry Lee's memoir that was published in the first decade of the 19th century. Uh, and of course, Lee and Marion were a team uh, from April 1781 through the rest of that year. Uh, places like Fort Mott, Fort Watson, and they were they were a great pair. But Lee says in his memoir about Marion, quote, his visage was not pleasing and his manners were not captivating. So he was neither good-looking or, uh, nor
3: charming. So there are two portraits in the exhibition, both painted in 1884, which was at the much later end of Marion's peak in you know popular culture after the Revolution. One painting was created by... Uh, a German immigrant artist named Johann Stahl from Charleston, the other painted by a man named George Burnap, who was, at the time the portrait was painted, the president of the Carolina Art Association, which is now attached to the Gibbs Museum of Art. Both of these portraits, although they were painted at the same time and in the same place, depict Marion in different ways. If you look at the Johann Stahl portrait. Marion is presented in a very formal way. It's a three-quarter portrait. He's looking off to the side. He's wearing very formal military dress and cap. And he looks like a stoic American hero, the kind of hero that you would expect to see. This is sort of post-Civil War, um, you know,
2: very formal. We're back in a context of big armies and big events and big battles, which interesting when you look at the, the earlier, the antebellum Marion representations crossing the P.D. Sweet Potatoes, uh, Birch's Mill, they show Marion for the most part during his partisan campaigns when he's dressed very informally, he's dressed like a militiaman. I think that was very much part of the theme that was emerging of Marion uh, being different and the story of Marion being different. I think Stephen and I were talking the way over here that uh, you know Weems was uh, all about creating a new national identity, creating themes around the infant American republic. And no sooner does Weems bring Marion into that as the southern component, than the fissures start to develop. I think southerners, as we move into the 19th century, as we move through nullification in the 1830s and move toward the the Civil War that we see the South wanting to distinguish itself from the rest, of the rest of the country in terms of its its history and heritage. So you have, you know, great leaders like Washington and they're tailor-made for epaulets and big battles and heroic paintings like uh, Crossing the Delaware or you know, some of those great uh, battles in the Northeast. Uh, and then you have Marion, who's always displayed in a very understated way as men are shabby, uh it, it's, I think, very much part of a creating this this sense of Southern separateness in terms of our heritage.
1: Enter William Gilmore Sims. Enter William
2: Gilmore Sims. who, Through his novels, but he also wrote A Life of America. Mm, mm, and I brought a cop today. Uh, and, of course, Sims is interesting because we have Weems in 1809, and it's almost laughable when you read it. Uh, Peter Ory was furious at Weems. He did not have his permission. Weems did not get his permission. I, I think one critic said uh, Ory's manuscript was mangled. Mangled, indeed. Unfortunately, we don't have Ory's manuscript, but we have at the Anna Library Ory's copy of Weems. And there's a wonderful part, Steve Smith talks about this in his book, uh, where Marion is given a speech before a battle or a skirmish. And he tells his men, I have a sweetheart and her name is Liberty. And in the margin, Ori uh, e. writes, Marion never made a speech to his men, ever. So uh, he turns Marion into this sort of charismatic figure. He clearly had some sort of personal charisma. He was able to keep a, a group of militiamen together through the darkest part of the war. But Weems wanted to turn him into a sort of conventional late 18th, early 19th century hero. Then you have William Dobian James, who was a boy. His father was the great John James, who was Marion's chief lieutenant, uh, at least one of his chief lieutenants. William Dobian James was a boy in Marion's brigade, and he wrote a reminiscence in 1821. Uh, William Dobian James, unfortunately, was an alcoholic. I think he lost his seat in the judiciary due to excessive drinking. He was riding it 40 years uh, post uh, so there's some things in James that aren't quite right. Then Sims comes along. And of course, by the time Sims publishes his biography in eighteen forty four, the Marion story is really on its own trajectory. The Francis Marion, and The Sweet Potatoes has been painted the decade before. Okay. Right. that's that, that that's an excellent segue
1: into uh, back to you, Stephen, and talk about the paintings that you have on exhibition. Probably the most famous, well, there're two. One is Crossing the Pe, the other is The Sweet Potato
0: story which one and, and, and I'm curious because he didn't grow sweet potatoes, so tell us what this is about
3: Well, so uh, when we track the appearance of Marion's representation in 19th century art, the first significant American painting showing Marion in a story that was originally told by Weems. it appears in 1836 painted by John Blake White, right? who was like Marion from St. John's Berkeley Parish, and uh, who knew Marion, or, or at least knew Marion's family because they had adjacent plantations. The stories that were told by Weems, and then later by James, and by Sims, they get picked up Uh, by these artists who were, for their own purposes, trying to create visually that American identity. So the story of Marion and the Sweet Potato Dinner uh, essentially is that Marion is in his famous swamp encampment at Snow's Island. Uh, He brings in a British officer blindfolded uh, into his camp in order to discuss a, a prisoner exchange And so in a show of his propriety, he invites this officer to share this very Spartan meal of sweet potatoes. So in John Blake White's interpretation of this popular story, we can see uh, Marion sort of as a a central figure. We can see the British officer wearing his red coat. We can see uh, Marion's slave, Oscar Marion on the ground, getting the sweet potatoes out of the fire and placing them on a table, a makeshift table. All this is surrounded by this PD Swamp environment. And just to underscore that this exhibition at the Florence County Museum is titled Legend of Francis Marion in the PD. And so what we're doing is we're linking 19th century art to the legend of Marion specifically in the PD. And and, and so the end of the story is that the British officer is so
2: impressed that these men are are fighting so fiercely and and living in the swamp and eating sweet, nothing but sweet potatoes uh, and drinking water that he um, goes back to Georgetown and resigns his commission. He says, you can't fight. Uh, men like that. Now, there are a couple of interesting connections with that. Number one, um, the it's it's a remarkable painting in that it's a it's a very formal sort of tableau. You see Marion and the officer standing in front of a table. It's almost got a Eucharistic feel to it. Marion's um, you know pointing at the potatoes like a priest would would hold up the host. And uh, I think this would have resonated with a 19th century, educated 19th century audience. This painting uh, became famous because it got
3: disseminated, Stephen, by the American art. Yeah, the uh, American Art Union, or as it was known at the time, the Apollo Association. In in 1840. And
2: Walter, I think uh, you'll remember you were at my parents' house once and we were looking at their uh, print. And um, you said something about how... You know, Marion didn't look like that. He was ugly. And my mother told you that you were not a proper historian if you thought <laughs> Francis Graham was ugly. But, <laughs> but he looks like a matinee idol. He's very youthful. He's very um, uh, almost sort of Tom Cruise-like. Um, but it's got this sort of sacral uh, – Feeling And the people who would have had that print in their house between 1840 and 1860, if they were educated, they would have been educated in Latin and Greek. And they probably would have read the uh, Greek author Plutarch. And Plutarch has a number of instances where he talks about the Spartans in ancient Greece. Uh, when they were on campaign, they lived on something called the black broth, milos uh, zomos in ancient Greek. And it's this awful uh, pottage made out of pig's blood and vinegar and offal. And uh, there are a number of instances in Plutarch where people say, no wonder the Spartans fight so fiercely if they're brave enough to, to live on the black broth and eat that awful food. They're clearly not scared of death. So there's a sense that, you know, what they're eating somehow reflects who well, they are. They're eating something uh, common, earthy. Uh, Mainly, for, you know, slaves were fed on um, on sweet potatoes. They were easily grown. You could throw them in a sack. You could transport them.
1: Thanks. We've got the painting, but then Stephen weren't prints developed, and so
3: this image was scattered across the country. Yes. Yeah, so John Blake White creates the painting in 1836, along with some other paintings of Marion, right, and his Revolutionary War activities. Um, the uh, important thing, one of the important things about this painting, is it was was the first, right? It was the first significant appearance of Marion in an, in an American painting. Second is that if you take a look at Marion in this painting, he looks nothing like William James description. And although John Blake White knew Marion and Marion's family, he has made a decision to represent him in this way. Four years after this painting is finished, uh, the Apollo Association in New York, they produce uh, an engraving right that is printed by the thousands, then distributed to their membership. So not everyone can come to see the original painting, but you produce this print. It gets sent out to thousands of people. And so this image of Marion is one of the first that gets imprinted in people's minds so that when they think of him, they think of him in this way and in this scene. All right. Now, was the print in color or was it black and white? Both. Both? Both.
2: Uh And they would would have been hand-colored.
1: Yeah, and so the sweet potato story survived the denigration of the South in history mm. after the, the, the mm. American Civil War, and Marion himself pretty well survived mm. in terms of history. But that sweet potato story, you know, reaching out to your enemy, yeah. uh, sharing what what you have, and as you said, the Spartan image yeah. uh, would have resonated with a yeah. lot of folks. Well, too. the
2: irony of it is we we never have found Marion's camp on Snows Island, but we did during the Francis Marion Trail Commission work find. Uh, Marion's Redoubt, or we were able to confirm that an earthwork on the other side of the river was Marion's Redoubt at a place called Dunham's Bluff, and we found a camp. So it's a pretty high degree of certainty that it's Marion's Camp. And in that camp were middens, rubbish pits, and in those rubbish pits, we found cow bones, pig bones, deer bones, fish bones, oyster shells. So not only were they uh, not just eating sweet potatoes, they were living pretty high, even eating oysters uh, when they were camped there at Dunham's Bluff across from Snow's Island. Which, not a huge uh, surprise, thirty miles upstream from twenty, thirty miles upstream from Georgetown, oysters are easily transportable in the cold months. They can. You can throw them on a barge, or throw them over the top of your saddle.
1: Well, you've you've also got, you know, these are country boys.
2: Yeah,
1: (laughs) they they know how to survive. Well, no
2: one in the PD who knows our landscape and knows our um, environment would have believed for a minute that a bunch of boys like that would be camped in the swamp between August and March of. 1780, 1781, and all they would have to eat is sweet potatoes. Speedy Swamp is full of fish and game, and these guys knew how to get it. So it's a great story, but almost certainly apocryphal. Okay.
0: Uh, I have a question. Yes. Uh, so so we have now, at last, with this uh, this painting becoming a print and becoming widely distributed, we've got a stamp of it, this image of Francis Marion, but no contemporary image. In nope. the same way, we have stories of Francis Marion first with Weems and then with Sims coming out, you know, so so Weems is more of a hagiography and Sims is is maybe, you know, promoting some things that were simply stories, not based in anything uh, that anybody contemporary wrote down or said. Are there any Francis Marion papers? There are. Um, his orderly book, his letters to
2: Nathaniel Green, I mean, people like Steve Smith have really comb through those to pick up as much information as they can. But these are pretty, you know, sort of formal communications. They don't give give any sort of subjective insights. They're uh, descriptions of, of troop conditions and need for supplies and that sort of thing. Another interesting thing is some of the few contemporary accounts we have of Marion or accounts from his contemporaries uh, come from pension applications from the 1820s and 1830s, old men who had fought with Marion who were trying to get a a pension from the government for their service. And Steve Smith does a great job of fleshing this out in his book that what we find is these pension applications will describe something. I mean, there's several that say, I was the man who was cooking the sweet potatoes, for instance. Well, what you find in this person's pension application is that their description of what they did is lifted straight out of Weems. So the story of Francis Marion was sort of collapsing on itself because it was giving rise to literature that then people were turning into fact. And so it's very hard to, to pick through those and find what someone actually remembered. And it's a great study on the relationship of memory to history. One of the things that was not
1: a myth was the heterogeneous nature of Marion's men. Mm. Persons who were enslaved, mm. persons who were free.
2: Some uh, black, some white is what Gates' adjutant said. Twenty men and boys, some black, some white, all miserably equipped is the way Yes, it is.
1: And, and and Gates, Galloper, Granny Gates, uh Sent him away. didn't didn't have much use mm. for Francis mm. Marin. He depended upon Thomas Sumter and mm-hmm. got himself beat.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very true. He sent Marion off to, to quote-unquote, gather intelligence to this obscure corner uh, of the state that we now call the PD, thinking that Marion was you know out of the way. Uh, so I think it's one of the great stories in the American Revolution. Marion rides out of Gates' camp probably the afternoon of August 15th. Uh, we know from Peter Rory's um, journal that they were awakened the next morning. They'd gotten 10 miles down the road toward uh, what's Williamsburg. Uh, they were awakened by the sound of gunfire. And they knew that the great battle that everyone had been waiting for started. And, and they had a question, do we go back and fight or we keep going? Marion said, no, we keep going. So they keep going. They ride into Witherspoon's ferry uh, on probably the afternoon of August 17th. And they don't know it, but they're the only fighting force left. Sumter's been defeated. Uh, Gates has been defeated. Marion's it. And for a good part of the remainder of 1780 and into 1781 he's he is it that's the only thing well
1: that, he is in the low country but the low the, country
2: yeah there's sumter gets back on his feet
1: well but it, we're not really depending upon sumter in the upcountry right i mean you you've got all sorts of smaller militia mm. groups mm, 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 particularly mm. beginning with the hooks defeat hooks defeat yeah and, yeah. and yeah. there's there's a whole string of these yeah. uh partisan raids i have
3: read your, read your book on that
1: yeah What's
3: interesting for me is that um, when you take a look at the significant American artworks from the 19th century, these artists have nearly unanimously decided to portray Marion in the PD. So, although he was certainly active and well-known for his other military campaigns, it was his activities in the PD Mm -hmm that became the subject of these famous stories that were told by his biographers and that were then later picked up by American artists. And that's the partisan phase. That's the romantic
2: phase. Jim you know, on Snow's Island. It's like his Athelney. It's his secret hideout from which he sallies forth from the mysterious depths of the swamp. Uh, they, you know, that's that partisan phase. And so that's what's – I think that's what's important to – Southerners leading up to the Civil War, and, and Steve again. I hate to keep citing Steve's book, but it, it, it is so excellent. Uh, he talks about all the nullifiers and secessionists who invoked Marion. You know, they're they're trying to come and change us. They're trying to come and change our way of life. Uh, remember the spirit of Marion. Resist the, the the powers of the of the federal government. So Marion really becomes sort of a a, a lightning rod. Um, in the 1840s and 1850s, for folks, he represents that independence.
1: But he, he still is a, a national hero. That's one of the ironies.
2: It is. It is. He means
1: different things to different people. I yeah. think. Well, let's move to the second major. It's not a myth. He did. He did yeah. cross the P.D. Yeah, sure. yeah. And uh, that's an incredible portrait. And I think, in terms of art, Stephen, uh, let's place it in in national perspective.
3: So, the largest painting in the exhibition, and possibly the largest historical painting of Francis Marion created in the 19th century, was painted in 1850 by an artist named William Ranney. Now, William Ranney was born in Connecticut, but spent about seven years living in North Carolina at what we would call the Yadkin end of the Great P.D. And William Ranney was very concerned with painting genre scenes, the everyday man, just the everyday lives of people. And then later, as he became interested in subject matter of the American West, the, the American frontier. But in the Southeast, Randy was very interested in the Great Petey River. So it appears in a couple of his paintings. Uh, one is a simple genre scene of some people on a ferry crossing the Petey, and that predates this this painting, Marion Crossing the PD, which is about seven feet wide. It's in this very ornate gold frame. It is on loan to the exhibition from the Ammon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. It's an interesting painting for a couple of reasons. Uh, we have a, a large group of men all packed together on this flat, raft like a ferry going across the great Petey River. Uh, It looks like it's dusk, right? You can see the river receding off into the horizon. Uh, So it's dark. You can imagine that Francis Marion is sort of moving quietly, you know, secretively across the river. But Marion doesn't appear in the center or the foreground of this image. He appears off to the side, and he's behind some other figures. So, Rani has decided to present Marion in the midst of his men, his militia, this irregular army that were devoted to him, devoted to the cause. So, as much as Marion is the subject matter, he is not in the center of the painting. It looks like a. I think one critic has said it looks like a
2: party coming back from a deer drive, and they're deer dogs. They're you know sort of guys in buckskin with powder horns, and you know they they look like a pretty sort of organic group of people. This isn't you know you'd like to compare it to Washington crossing the Delaware, where you've got Washington, this great figure, and mm-hmm. his resplendent in his uniform and the flag, and it really makes a almost a sort of ideological argument about the, mo- the movement of the American Revolution and liberty and uh, the American cause and the war, and and this is so. Different and So much more understated, and, and I've been sort of grappling with the, the right way to, to think about the distinction between the two, but I really think that the, the theme that comes out of these artworks, it's, it's more of a defense of home. It's more of a sort of, this is who we are, this is where we are, we're defending our home. You know, the, the crossing the Delaware wants to make a point. It wants to get you into an argument about a, about some of the underlying ideologies in the war. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that that was always dangerous to do in the antebellum South because when you started talking about things like freedom and liberty and civil rights and all the, the the ideological underpinnings of the revolution, you bumped up against slavery, and that became difficult. So there's more of a, a sense in these Marion paintings that these are sort of people of the land. Defending their land, which I think is the way Southerners were beginning to speak in those first decades of the 19th century. Well, this is another one of those
1: paintings that was engraved and widely distributed, Mm. right, Stephen?
3: This became one of the most well-known images of Marion, telling that Marion story. It was distributed in prints by the American Art Union, which is what became of the Apollo Association in New York, who owned the painting uh, for a time. And uh, so the Marion story gets distributed in the same way that the sweet potato dinner painting by John Blake White gets distributed. Not everyone can come to see the original painting, but by distributing the image, you can distribute the story and therefore the myth. But
2: I will say, uh, if you can come and see it at the Florence County Museum, it is spectacular. I, I get a... a chill when I walk in front of it. It just really glows. Is this an
3: exhibit that's going to be permanently there or? No, this exhibition uh, is up until the middle of August. You want to talk about the other Sweet Potatoes painting? Because I think that was
2: almost sort of a a
3: launching point. Yes. yes. Well, I would say before we move on to that, that uh, if you take a look at John Blake White's uh, painting of, you know, Marion and the Sweet Potato uh, Dinner, although he has chosen to uh, depict Marion And as a young man, in this heroic fashion, it's not that he was unaware of what Marion looked like. If you take a look at other paintings by John Blake White of Marion, for instance, the burning of the Mott Mansion, you can see that John Blake White has depicted Marion as an older man. He he was certainly aware of what Marion looked like. Um, And the other thing to note about John Blake White's paintings is that John Blake White was also a playwright. And so That's these paintings, when you look at the way that they're composed, that they're composed. Much like someone in theater, it's a tableau. Would yeah. would compose a scene. You've mm-hmm. got a few central characters in the foreground. They're dramatically composed and theatrically lit. Uh, it's just something interesting to me about Jump Like White as an artist and his treatment of the subject matter. So,
0: so they're in the proscenium, so to speak. I mean, they're as if on the stage in front mm, of you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there is another picture. Another painting,
1: rather, that White did of inviting a British officer to share his meal in which there is an older man. He's got the beaked nose. Oh,
2: that's not White. We don't know who that that's is. That's not White? That's not White. That's part of the mystery. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, the Oakland Club painting, it's fascinating. The Oakland Club is one of the oldest hunting clubs in South Carolina and actually owns much of the Marion family's lands down on the Santee River. And I'm a member of the Oakland Club, but I've been there for years uh, as a guest. And the first time I was there as a guest, I walked into the parlor of the main house and there was this painting that just startled me. And it was this representation. I knew the, what it was immediately, but it was so different from John Blake White Persian at Sweep Days. The first thing I noticed, Walter, as we discussed, is Marion looks like he's supposed to. He's short, bow-legged, hook-nosed, swarthy. He's even wearing the kind of clothes that... Uh, William W. and James. Too bad your mother couldn't see that. My mother wouldn't have approved of it. But anyway, <laughs> um, so but there's no there's no table there's no tableau. Um, the sweet potatoes are arrayed on a log, and of the sweet potato stories, and Steve Smith got a great discussion of those in his book, the different differing stories and where they come from. Weems has them on a log, so this is probably Weemsian. And Stephen, I took Stephen down there a couple of years ago. To look at the painting, took it out of the frame and looked at the stretcher and everything. And Stephen, I think, has some ideas on stage. It may predate John Blake White, well, but one of the key things is the the swamp itself is the painting. It's not the um, it's not sweet potatoes, but it's this whole sort of atmosphere of Marion's camp. The first thing that caught my eye, just behind Marion, there's a snake. Yeah, there's a, there's a dead snake in the background. And, of course, the characters are, are absolutely creepy,
3: like something out of a horror movie. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's also interesting to note in this painting, the the subject matter is the same, as in John Blake White's painting of Marion inviting a British officer to share his meal. But the treatment is a little bit different. Uh, as Ben said, the environment is almost the subject matter here. Whereas the figures who are engaged in the action, they appear sort of to the left and to the right of the image. But what you do get is this um, this depiction of the swamps around the Great Peedee River, where this supposedly took place. To me, the
1: swamp is the story. Mm. Mm. I hate to do this, gentlemen, but Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign, okay. yep. and so. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today?
2: Well, I had brought one quote with me that I I would like to read, if you don't mind, because I think this exhibit not only has incredible art, but it's a real interesting study on history, how art and history interact. Uh, And I think Sims, I've gained a new um, appreciation for Sims in in getting ready for all this. I think Sims, uh, as much as anyone in 19th century, got it. And there's a great quote in the first part of Sims that I'd like to read, if you don't mind. sure. Uh, He writes, the fame of Marion rests very much upon tradition. There is little in the books to justify the strong and exciting relish with which the name is spoken and remembered throughout the country. In this respect, his reputation is like that of all other heroes of romantic history. It is a people's history, written in their hearts rather than in their books, which their books could not write, which would lose all of its golden glow if subjected to the cold details of phlegmatic chronicles. So I think that... Captures. He, he got it. He understood that, that the Marian he was dealing with was more of a mythological
3: figure than a historical figure. Stephen? Uh, well, also kind of point to the the origin of this is in literature. The origin of these artworks is in the stories that were told by Mason Locke Weems and by uh, William James and William Gilmore Sims. And, you know, to keep in mind the fact that we may think that we know uh, all there is to know about Marian... Uh, but as this archaeology has recently revealed, we don't know everything there is to know. And much of what we thought we knew uh, comes f- uh, from the history of art and the way that Marion was treated by 19th century artists.
1: Well, Stephen Mott and Ben Zegler, I want to thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. When I first broached the topic of, let's talk about an art exhibit, to tell this story on a podcast, some of my friends thought wouldn't be possible, but it was. The interplay of literature, art, history, and archaeology are all a part of The story of this exhibit at the Florence County Museum and describing it on the radio with two folks who are so enthusiastic about the life and legend of Francis Marion brought this part of South Carolina and American history to a wider audience.
0: Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters.
1: New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at southcarolinapublicradio.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll talk again soon.